Oh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Um, I'd like to welcome you to this ODI webinar. Um, we have some numbers trickling in, so I'm not going to jump in too quickly. I'll give it about 20 seconds. Um, but perhaps just to briefly introduce myself, um, my name is Nalima Goldrajani, and I'm a senior research fellow at ODI, a global affairs think tank that is very much focused on the ability to take research and allow it to act on injustice and inequality. Um, my own research straddles the intersection of development finance and bilateral uh, donor donors and donor governance and donor architecture and donor behavior. And um, for this reason, I'm thrilled to be able to welcome you to this seminar. Um, the, the seminar today, um, as you would have seen, has the topic of the unintended effects of foreign aid. Should donors avoid them, accept them, or act on them? Um, so I'm thrilled because I get to moderate this discussion on, on a fantastic new book um, by Dirk Jankok, who is the Chief Science Officer at the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, and the book um, has the title Foreign Aid and Its Unintended Consequences. Um, I also get to welcome two stellar, high-powered female discussants with a wealth of experience observing and working inside um, some of these bodies to really unpack um, Dirk Jan's findings and what they might really mean for the way Northern um, agencies conduct their business um, and their future as well. So I'd like to also present um, Christina Bayingana, who is the Head of Internal Evaluation at Enable, the Belgian Development Agency, and Geshi Karuri Sabina, Associate Professor at the University of Witzwatersand. A warm welcome to you all. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for the next hour. Um, so I'm just going to dive right in, uh, and I'm going to start with, with Dirk Jan. Um, Dirk Jan, your book touches on a lot of pain points <laughs> that the development system is currently facing. Um, you talk about the backlash against aid, um, where aid is now seen as exploitation, as the exercise of white privilege, as a way to indoctrinate foreign values, um, for example, gender norms into, into areas where those norms may be contested. Um, you also raise some really interesting questions about bureaucratic tolerance for risk, <laughs> for example, the risk of corruption. You, for me, raise some questions about whether AIDS ambition should be limited to do no harm. Um, and if so, has the geopolitical competition with China already been lost, if that is the ambition that we have? And I think, lastly, you know, questions about localization, how we localize the aid, um, aid provision without cementing the privileges of large intermediate organizations or increase local administrative burdens. Um, so this book is um, relevant for a topic that we're doing work on at ODI that's really thinking about what the modern 21st century donor that increasingly operates in this kind of world where aid is contested, where these side effects are increasingly acknowledged. What should what should the industry be doing? How should it be operating? And I just want to say, if that anyone is interested in this work, we have a slew of forthcoming events and publications. And please contact um, our program manager, and his email will be put in the chat right now. So, 
Jurkan, your book is a breath of fresh air, drawing attention to these unintended effects, which you define as the consequences of an action that differ from the consequence it was aimed for when starting it. Um, you admit that these unintended effects are, are, are mainly negative, but not all. Um, and you talk about the fact that if anyone is looking for a dead aid book, this is not it. And, and I concur, this book is really about possibilities and plausibilities for reform of the aid endeavor, one where there is no managerial fix. So Durkan, I'd like to start by asking you, what was your motivation for writing the book? And, and you know, finally, were your employers supportive of the endeavor, given you also work in the context of a, of a, of a development agency? Um, well, uh, thanks, Nilima, uh, for, for having me. And uh, so I think uh, the motivation or maybe the inspiration is a better word was actually a, a class that I was teaching in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I was a professor at the University of Kinshasa. And I was teaching this course, International Development Cooperation. And after 10 sessions, I asked my students, well, in the end, do you think that this international cooperation is it helping or hindering the, the DRC? And uh, one uh, student uh, wrote her hand and said, yes, definitely, it's working. And, and, and I asked her, so, but how is it then working, do you think? And she said, well, my, my cousin is working for an international NGO, Caritas, and he has been paying my tuition fees in high school and at university. And thanks to my studies, I now have an internship at the bank. And uh, I will be, uh, once I've graduated, I can continue with a real job there. And without the financial support from my cousin, this would never have worked so yes it is working and i'm like okay that's interesting because i've been teaching about debt relief about randomized controlled trials and but not about this these types of effects which are outside of the original theory of change and um, so then i started to look at all the evaluations that donors do and then i saw that in the terms of reference we always ask them yeah please look at unintended effects but then if i was looking at the research reports themselves i I hardly saw any mention of them. So that's why I said, okay, uh, maybe we should give all those evaluators research a hand by, by developing a typology. And uh, that's what I've been trying to do. Oh, and your second question is how my ministry reacted right to it. So uh, yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. Now, I haven't been back since I started to present uh, the book, but uh, they know I was working on it. And as a matter of fact, they have been granting me one day a week of, of uh, uh, to do this research, which took about six years. So this is also one of my recommendations, you know, to really uh, support this type of more independent research uh, uh, by people who are actually practitioners themselves, because, yeah, we can learn a lot from that, I think. Great. Well, it's it's good to hear that they were so supportive to even give you the time to be able to to work on this book. Now, I mean, in the book, you 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 bust a lot of myths around <laughs> unintended effects. You know, you say that these effects can be anticipated; they are avoidable. They're often exaggerated. They can be positive, um, and they can be subjective. So, can you tell us a bit more about the framework for thinking about these different kinds of unintended side effects, and why and how they're they're generated in the first place? Yes, indeed. So uh, in the end, you know, I come up with 10 main unintended effects, some kind of checklist that whether you're a planner or you're a policymaker or an evaluator, yeah, you can just have a look at whether they are relevant for the program uh, that you are supporting. Uh, and um, yeah, 
you know, the time is too short to go through all 10 of them, but I think what's relevant uh, to know is that uh, some are quite well known and are being acted upon, and others are really yeah, little known and little acted upon. So let me maybe, for instance, focus on, on the backlash effects. Uh, the backlash effects, uh, you alluded to those already in your introduction, it is uh, that, uh, yeah, there is a counter-reaction in the countries where aid is active by populations, by leaders against aid intervention. So, for instance, we have seen that with uh, the Ebola response, you know, quite some Ebola clinics were being burned down. And many of the aid actors were so surprised by that because, I mean, this is a good thing, right? Uh, Ebola uh, treatment centers. But for many uh, local population, they they felt like, hey, what are those people in big white costumes doing? And hey, this looks a lot like in the past when they were testing medicines on us without our consent. And maybe it's them actually bringing the Ebola. So this is just one example uh, of, uh, you know, how historical legacies still play a big role in how aid is being viewed and that we should yeah, find ways of addressing that. Great. So, I mean, following on from that, what would be your key recommendations for, for how how donors and the donor community should should deal with these effects? If they're historically kind of contingent or, or what, what should be the strategy they should be thinking about? Uh, yeah, so I think I have one overarching uh, suggestion and I'm going to speak a bit louder. I hear that that's uh, the request. And uh, then, yeah, three more practical things. So the overarching suggestion would be to actually don't engage or pretend to be in development if you're not really uh, engaged in development issues. So if you your real aim is to yeah, win some geopolitical allies or to uh, stop migration, well, don't pretend that you're doing international development because it's those double agendas that create a lot of the resentment, I think, and create a lot of the side effects. And uh, also, uh, we turn a blind eye or donors turn a blind eye to those side effects if they are more into it for the geopolitical game. So, uh, yeah, that's, I think, the overarching comment. Um, then uh, the, the, the three more specific ones, if you allow me, are that uh, I think that as the donor should really promote much more collective action to, to address uh, yeah, sector-wide negative uh, side effects. Uh, for instance, uh, sexual exploitation and abuse by, by aid workers. Uh, but uh, secondly, I think they should really focus much more on stimulating uh, adaptive programming and locally-led development. And, and lastly, they, I think it's very important that we focus much more on open, uh, uh, an open uh, communication and empowering communication instead of, yeah, and uh, communication which leads to more marginalization. So these are some of the things that I would like to kick off with. That's great. Um, can I just quickly follow up on that? Do, do you think there are any particular donors that are doing these things well, that have kind of, or that are leaders, let's say, in terms of handling these side effects? Oh, wow, that's a good question. No, I think in certain side effects are being taken more seriously, for instance, with conflict sensitivity. You know that 10 years ago, this conflict sensitive way of working was really not existing that much. Uh, but uh, uh, some agents really put it on the agenda, like saying, hey, please be aware that with your foreign aid, you are sometimes contributing to conflict. And now we see that UNICEF, other players are much more aware of 
okay, where are we building the schools? Is this contested land or not? Or who are we recruiting? Are we recruiting from both sides of the conflict or just one side of the conflict? So I see that, and I wouldn't say that certain donors are doing better than others, but I see that certain themes are being picked up more systematically than others. Great. Okay, thank you. Um, that's great, Durkian. I think I'll turn to to Christina now, um, if that's all right, to offer us a bit of a a view from from a from a development agency. Um, there's some really powerful anecdotes in in Durkian's book around the push and pull factors um, that that drive these unintended effects, um, and you know the idea that some evaluation in particular um, tends to miss some of the the positive spillovers effect, the catalytic effects. Um, so I was wondering what what your thoughts were here as as head of internal evaluation, Christina. You know, are is evaluation missing some of these unintended effects? Um, what needs to change to to allow the evaluation process to take them into account more and to to openly start conversations about them? Um, so I'll turn to you. Yes, thank you, uh, Nilima. Um, well, yeah, maybe for, for sure we miss it because, of course, it's sometimes difficult to to look for something that you're not looking for, uh, that you're not expecting. Um, but I think that here, uh, what is important in evaluations, but overall in our practice is uh, basically, and something that is mentioned also in the book of Dirkian, is to embrace a complexity in practice. Um, and this goes for, for a number of uh, aspects of our work in, uh, in, in development aid. Um, I would say that um, very frequently we, we hear donors and organizations speaking about polycrisis and the complex context in which we work. So we kind of recognize this, this complexity and interconnections between the various uh, topics, uh, SDGs, and we, we see that it's not that simple. But then we, this acknowledgement also fails in, often to translate into practice and implementation. Um, and so it's really important that uh, somehow we walk the talk when we speak about comple the complex context in which we work. And we include that in our processes, in our work. So I think that to achieve that is really to, to foster uh, if we foster flexibility in our implementation by having uh, uh, um, planning and monitoring and evaluation, embedding complexity. Uh, and, and so it means that we look beyond this rigid and linear approach uh, and, and the logical frameworks or a very limited theory of changes. Um, because this linear approach uh, makes us uh, miss uh, reality. So I think that, um, yeah, to, to respond to this first uh, part of the question, uh, embracing complexity in practice is really, I think, for me, a first step to make sure that we can include that in our practice. Great. Uh, thanks, Christina. I mean, there's been a lot of work on um, thinking and working politically, adaptive management, um, problem iterative adaptation. I mean, the last decade has had a slew of interest in these ideas. Um, and yet, I think there's a lot of, um, there's been a lot of challenge actually bringing this into practice. I mean, not just in the evaluation world, but also in terms of trying to shift 
um, bureaucracies to be less conservative, to embrace risk. Um, I'm wondering what we can do about that um, from your view inside inside a, a you know Belgian cooperation. And is is there just a, a level of um, intolerance for that kind of complexity inside these bureaucracies? And how do we shift the needle? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think in, indeed, as you said, there is a lot of progress that has been done, but uh, a lot is stays in rhetoric. And, and I mean, we maybe have already, we know what we need to do. Everybody knows what we need to do in terms of improved monitoring and evaluation, if I speak only about this field of work. But throughout our projects or programs implemented, we know that it's really important also to to have a good uh, understanding of the context. Um, for example, I mean, I will give uh, the example, an example that I like really much is about um, the use a few years ago of uh, genetic, genetically modified seeds uh, with the aim of uh, doubling crop production. And, um, but however, we kind of in this practice, I say we, like international community, overlooked the long-standing traditions and cultural uh, practices within the communities to uh, to produce their own seeds annually. And although these practices really uh, contributed to local resilience against climate change, against um, other challenges, but also had a significant uh, value and interpretation in, in the cultures and, and, and for the environment. So if we might have conducted some research and, and looking more in depth into understanding the local context and traditions and cultures existing, we, we would have, we could have averted a number of uh, potential disasters. So maybe taking time also to, to understand very well the context in which we work with the local community, uh, allowing more owner, local ownership. That's a first part of what could be done. Um, and then, and then, and this is responding to this uh, aspects of complexity. Um, and then the second aspect I, I would like to emphasize is um, to give learning a central place in decision making. So learning. Um, it's true, we, we can speak about adaptive management, um, uh, flexibility in our actions, um, but learning is really changing our, how to say that, the balance that we put uh, on learning to, uh, and accountability is also important to, uh, to take into account because historically our donors were mostly expecting reports that are going primarily focused on, on accountability. And um, now we see this uh, paradigm shifting and, and I'm quite uh, happy to see that also happening in the Belgian development cooperation where there is a strong interest of our main uh, donor to, uh, for learning. And, and this means that we need to, to go a bit further and learning from our mistakes. So uh, it's not always easy to learn from mistakes it, because it means accepting that failure is possible and that we can learn more from failure than from successes. So here I see that uh, evaluations, for example, can be promoted as tools for learning, um, but not only um, promoted as tools, but also it's also here um, about the use of evaluation to adapt our strategies. This is also an important aspect. And also as evaluation brings a lot of new evidence, 
Um, I think that it can influence policy as well. So if we, through evaluation, can identify unintended effects, it is then possible to advocate and to have this evidence to advocate for policy change. And, and this can help to reduce these effects in the future as well. Great. Um, just a last follow-up for you, Christina, which is, you know, we're, we're living in a political climate at the moment where we're, you know, there are very polarized views on aid. Um, learning from failure um, can actually be weaponized by um, those who maybe have, you know, anti-aid views um, in the UK context, you know, that the media, you know, watches um, these mistakes um, and then reports on them quite heavily. Um, I, I was wondering how you how you square that kind of desire for honesty and openness and learning from failure with the reality that their weaponization of these mistakes is is really quite possible in today's climate. It's not that easy because just internally already it's a change of culture and a change of mindset as well. So um, in Enable, we, we, we are in a, we, we will try to practice and to work in a collaborative um, uh, governance, meaning that we, we want also to introduce a, um, a, a, a very authentic relating in, in the way we're working with each other. So this allows us, gives us a space to, to be able to speak also openly internally about our failures. But I think it's an entire change process that goes through different steps. It's not only within the organization, it's within the organization. And then we need to include also our donors and making sure that they have the same view as we about openness, about uh, all the lessons learned. I don't think that this is a process that can happen in one day. It, it, it takes a long time and to change basically our uh, mindsets. And I think it's by doing it, we can show actually that it has something positive to bring also to, to improve our actions in the future. But it's true that um, if we have, in case we have donors that are risk averse or but also we can see that when there is a, an aspect linked to finance, it's very difficult to say that you have failed to, to, to produce this output that was expected because actually the context changed. It's not that obvious. So I don't know if any other people have any ideas about that, but for us, it's really a change that will take some time, but I'm glad to see that this dynamic exists and we, we, we try to have this at least internally to start with and, and, and before going outside. Great, Thank, thanks, Christina. Um, Geshe, I'm going to turn to you now um, and bring you in here. Um, you know, you you have worked on urban planning and governance um, for many, many years, and I assume seen firsthand some of these side effects. You know, how how do you see them play out in in operational contexts in South Africa or elsewhere you've worked, and um, how do you feel about Durkian's framework for for thinking about them? Uh, thank you so much, Nilima. And I really want to actually thank Dirk for this book. Um, I, I think it's really exciting in particular because I think it's the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> uh, I feel that uh, what Dirk is helpfully uh, unearthing and also beginning to analyze, uh, and I like the anecdote he began with, are these unknown stories and what they might mean for our understanding in a very sort of empirical way uh, about development. But I think 
it is yet to get to even the untold stories. Uh, and so probably there'll be many, many years of more work in this, Dirk, uh, and, and well done for this. Um, maybe just a couple of comments. I, I giggled a little bit when uh, he made the point about uh, double agendas um, creating resentment and the fact that we have actors in this space who are, are really doing multiple things, which often has led me to question whether development in that way or done in that way is an agenda, as we seem to be referring to it, or merely an instrument or tool. Uh, very vivid in my mind is an experience of um, one of our development partners uh, from the north uh, shifting priorities midstream, so literally stopping an area of work, which is probably one of these never ending areas of work, uh, because they've now done five years on it and the new government had new priorities for international relations and therefore we are no longer doing that, we are now doing this and it's not one, they're not the only one, we had several examples of these in very major ways, so I'm not talking about small side programs, I'm talking about major uh, focus areas of work as big as in some cases the education system or, or dealing with issues of safety you know so some of these really big issues are just completely shifting to say okay it's all climate change now okay it's all something else now um and and and, and that really speaks to what is one really doing and what's the degree of honesty uh, around that um so i think this instrumental instrumentalization of, of development and development aid is a very real thing, uh, which probably leads me, and I'll, I'll frame it as a question because uh, Dirk might have a question, a response to it, but is the extent to which the book looks quite objectively at the question of power and the analysis of power. Uh, because I think this underlies this question I ask, you know, is it an agenda and, and whose agenda, what's at stake for whom? Uh, um, and, and what's the role of the asymmetrical power relations in that, uh, in even trying to shift it? So that I, I found perhaps an area that I would uh, be keen to hear more about. Um, I appreciated also, I think in the way you frame your question, you know, from a global South perspective, uh, this kind of work is always interesting because often we are the target as the needy and deficient, obviously, <laughs> of it for various reasons. I'm, I'm kind of joking, uh, saying it that way. But it does lend itself, though, to that idea that any help is good help. And I appreciate the book picking up on that. So this idea that... Um, uh, do no harm, perhaps is an important, actually, uh, a concept to hold on to. So the question I would raise with that um, is, uh, and I completely agree with it, actually, to the extent that I've been part of programs where people's attitude, I, I would say it's not even just a myth, I think it's even a paradigm or mental model that when people are needy, any help is good help, uh, and you have a lot of leeway to make a lot of mistakes because you're helping and helping people to death <laughs> at that. Uh, so I appreciate the sentiment for it. The question is how to ensure, and I think the book does actually refer to this, and, and Dirk did in his intro, this being used to abdicate then the responsibility for dealing with the messiness uh, uh, and the many accountabilities actually that have to be held in this space. So we acknowledge it, but to what extent does work like this, you know, what's the duty on work like this to make sure that that isn't the easy response? That, okay, because we don't fully understand and we're being challenged, let's just do less. Uh, and so I'm keen to hear how Dirk has responded to some of those issues. And then maybe just a, a, a third and final point, uh, uh, one of my favorite bits of this book uh, in sort of scanning through it was the call made to look at things differently, to use a wider lens and to use these broader conceptualizations of well-being. Uh, for me, this is very crucial to decolonizing. Uh, and I think part of that has to go with how we build better soft infrastructure for the aid system. 
Uh, when I say soft infrastructure, I mean how we challenge some of those hierarchical bureaucracies uh, and encourage the transversality that allows for different power relations. How do we talk about trust? How do we have more open feedback loops? That calls a lot for communication and communicating differently. But there are many reasons why we don't communicate differently. And a lot of it has to do with those hierarchies. How do we build social capital? Less bureaucracy, more developmental. Uh, how do we think about empowerment as something that's actually both a means and an end? Uh, so I really liked that part of the book, uh, but I guess um, uh, maybe their thoughts about how do we build better soft infrastructure in the system. Great. Um, thank Yanni Geshe for that. I mean, the soft infrastructure point is 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 very, um, the term it captivates me, actually. Um, and I think there are likely some serious challenges. And, and that is why I asked Dirk Jan initially to, to talk about some of the successes that he's seen potentially, because I think they're probably few and far between and very isolated. And I hope, hope that some more openness and honesty and dialogue, we can celebrate those successes as well as examples that then others can, can learn from and, and use, because I do think um, it needs courage um, at some level to, to be able to, to do this um, well. Um, great, okay, so what I'd like to do now is we have a couple of questions coming in, but I'm also mindful that the panelists themselves probably have a few things they want to engage with. So let's give the questions a minute or two and maybe um, let me open it up to the, to three, the, the three panelists. Um, Dirk Jan, maybe you want to respond directly given I guess she had a, had a question directly for you and, and then you know happy to open it up for a few minutes and then we'll start with the questions. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I'm glad to see already some questions coming in. So please uh, continue with that. But uh, yeah, Geshe, to the issue of power, I think it's a very relevant point because there's really this relationship between unintended effects and power and are they taking into consideration or not? So let me just give the example of food aid. You know, so food aid in the 1980s and 90s, we already knew that actually this was not helping so much many of the developing countries. It was actually hurting many farmers. There was a big lobby in the Netherlands and Canada and the US to continue with this food aid because it was a way for them to get rid of their surpluses, their agricultural surpluses. It was only when local farmers started to organize together with international NGOs showing that actually there were so many side effects of this food aid. And if you really want to do something about hunger and low production capacity, you should purchase more food locally and, and strengthen that. So when civil society started to organize and started to mobilize people and showing like, hey, this is actually going on. Then big players like World Food Program, yeah, started to feel the pressure that they actually needed to change that system. So indeed, I think that uh, yeah, power relations should be central in understanding them to, to if you effectively want to deal with, with side effects. And then if you do that, then, then change can happen. Yeshi, yeah, would you like to come to respond to that or? No, I completely, completely agree. Um, and for me, what and I love this example, because what it demonstrates, and I don't know what period of time it took for that kind of organizing and advocacy to happen. Uh, and, and while appreciating, I think, the point that was uh, being made previously by Christina about the learning process, there's a huge amount of energy and time and effort that goes to having to organize huge you know interventions to argue something probably that is not a difficult case to make you know what i mean the burden of <laughs> proving that something isn't working when everybody knows it's not working uh, i i think is 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 a really important part of this story but thank you for that Dirk. great christina anything to add 
No? Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start um, with a couple of the questions that have come in and, and please feel free to, to send more through. Um, so one question I have from Eric Sario was, he was wondering if you see linkages between your work on unintended effects and Ben Ramalingam's aid on the Ed of Chaos or Bob Lamb's dual system problem and development assistance, or indeed the work of Merton going back 70 years. <laughs> so yeah, Turkian. Yeah, definitely. So the work by uh, Ben, uh, who used to work for ODI, right? And didn't he? Uh, has been really a source of inspiration because I think he was one of the first uh, to introduce this complexity thinking into and to development. And uh, in a theoretical chapter of the book, uh, I really tried to unpack some of the key concepts for com from complexity theory, which can help us to understand uh, uh, unintended effects. So we look at feedback loops, I look at uh, alternative impact pathways. So yeah, the, this book is really inspired by his work. I am ashamed to say that I don't know the second author you mentioned. So right after we finish this uh, session, I will look at Bob Lamb's uh, dual system problem. Great. Um, so second question, and maybe Christina, I'll, I'll turn this one to you. Would it encourage learning? It's from Kasamaiji Valimaki. Would it encourage learning and add a touch of reality if all official aid donors were mandated to report on at least one failure annually? Yeah, well, that, that's an interesting uh, proposal. I think that uh, it's interesting to, to look at something like that. Uh, although here, I mean, what I think we need in the first instance is really this safe, safe space to... To, to allow discussion and exchange so that there is no um, shame and blame about a failure because, I mean, it happens. And the, the fact that we're learning about failure can help us to improve. So this needs to be also understood this way. So safe spaces for sure. Um, now, again, I mean, should it be a sort of... Uh, uh, mandatory reporting. I don't know. We here we we kind of will maybe miss the the point of actually learning together as donors with actors who are implementing. So um, and, and beyond only donors, I think that I mean we speak about donors, but uh, or uh, yeah, aid donors. But actually, the learning needs to happen between. For if I take the example of bilateral cooperation uh, between two countries. Uh, Belgium with another country uh, with whom we work and who, who is our partner, the learning needs to happen between these two countries, between the different uh, stakeholders, uh, and to, because uh, we're never involved in the program without our partners, and uh, it's important that this is discussed at this level as well. Um, yeah, so that's what I can say, but I think it's a really interesting idea to to bring this kind of indicator also at the level of donors. Maybe something for the DAC peer review, potentially, um, uh, so that it's, you know, there's collective um, protection in numbers um, by admitting because that. Already at the level of an organization, uh, if I take the example of Enable, it could be an interesting exercise to say, okay, managers on the, you know, in the different projects and in countries, try to identify at least one failure Annually, I don't know, but at, at least one failure that we can have a moment, a specific moment with which is a, a safe space to discuss a failure. And we can have the context of the best failure ever. 
<laughs> just to to help discussing it and to to help breaking the taboo about failures. Okay, great. Um, we then have a comment about some of the sources of resistance to um, operationalizing these ideas. Um, so Eric again talks about, you know, the behavioral economics of living in large institutions, um, maintaining a strong resistance to um, these principles, for example, career paths and job security, which may militate against, um, you know, this idea of learning from failure or, or open dialogue on these side effects, um, acceptance of complexity in day-to-day -day business and how that squares with just the need and the imperative to get things done. Um, or simply the human need to believe in what one does and not live with too much uncertainty. So, I mean, Jerkian, I mean, I, your, your book, you know, does encourage us to, to embrace complexity and that that radical uncertainty that that exists, frankly, not just in the aid endeavor, but in almost every endeavor, I would say, especially in these times. Um, but how do you how do you answer that? that question of, you know, how do we square these, these, these imperatives of, of, you know, the rational modern way of, of working? Yeah, I, what I suggest is not to abandon planning altogether. You know, some people would say, oh, let's just uh, stop uh, with that. I do think there's some mel uh, value in, in having the SDGs, for instance, as a yardstick, and, and then you realize that, okay, we're now off track, we need to do something, you know, let's, let's try to get there. I know they're imperfect, but I, I do think that we should to have should have some aims. But I think we should have much more flexibility in in how to get there and really be much more open about potential synergies, but also about potential trade-offs. And I think that's what we often now don't do. Huh? That people are just working in their own silo and trying to count the results they achieve in their uh, little thematic area, whereas there are so many synergies uh, that, that we need to take into consideration. Yeah. And then a tongue in cheek comment here, which is, oh, Geshe, please go ahead and then I'll. Uh, sorry, no, please go ahead if it's on the same one. I just wanted to add something. Okay. Um, well, it was just more that, you know, we, we know some of these sources of resistance and, you know, how many more books do we need kind of telling <laughs> the system that these exist? These are problems that need to be tackled. I mean, I'll open that up to anybody, but, you know, Geshe, please, why don't, why don't you start if, yeah. No, and, and actually what I wanted to add is that um, I, I also want to not necessarily challenge, but broaden this particular comment, because in recent work we were doing where we were actually studying some of the trends and developments in aid in Africa, just, uh, just, just after COVID, I was really surprised at the difference between what development individuals, so individuals in the development system seem to say and know, and many of them were very critical, actually, versus what the development institutions do, the development aid institutions do. Uh, and so I, I think that perhaps putting it down to the behavior of individuals versus perhaps the dynamics of institutions uh, might miss the point that, um, uh, in, in fact, I think the resistance isn't always from the people in the system, or at least not from all of them. Uh, in fact, I was very impressed in many of the organizations we spoke to at, at really how internally critical people were. Um, what, of course, then stands to question is, is how is it then that they continue to be or to find themselves in systems that don't actually want to change in spite of better evidence internally? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with, with that, Yeshi. Any any other thoughts on that? Institutions versus individuals? I mean, all I can say is that in, in the kind of Western democratic systems, these institutions are essentially you know, holding themselves accountable to parliament and taxpayers. And there's a sense in which 
you know, the taxpayer demand, demands the the kind of complexity, the safeguards, the due diligence process that essentially stymies some of the um, desires for more uh, progressive change. Um, but but yeah, I don't know if that's a satisfactory <laughs> um, answer. It's 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 a it's a it's a political constraint, perhaps more than anything else. Yeah. Um, uh, if I can add, just I think, uh, but on the other hand, we are part of the system and agent of change as well. So and, and it's it doesn't mean that the change will happen suddenly or very quickly. But I think that we have tools also through the practice by knowing the context by working in in this uh, sector uh, we we can influence we can try to find ways to influence as well the more the, the institutions as individuals collectively so because we are part of the system i think we can also help the system overall to change by changing our practices as well yeah, and there's a really concrete suggestion in the comments from Catherine Brain about why is this not actually being discussed in the context of the pitch for increased capital for the IFIs, for example, right? So in the context of trying to reform the international financial system and obtain more capital, why are we not actually talking about some of these institutional constraints that um, that prevent us um, from, from kind of really engaging with these side effects? Um, great, um, so I'll move on. So Mike Millward, has a question here about um, corruption, a key aspect of skepticism towards aid, which as you say, can be weaponized by anti-aid groups, are examples of corruption where aid funding is siphoned off by government officials or other actors. Aid agencies need to showcase the controls and processes they adopt to ensure that funding goes to the intended beneficiaries and mitigate the risk of funds going astray. So this is very pertinent to this conversation about um, institutions. Um, Durkan, you have you have a whole chapter on on corruption and and how to and you talk about calculated risk taking. I wonder if if that might be a way to answer this question or comment. Yeah. So I think. Uh... What we should not do is stop challenging our own mistakes or stop learning because others might exploit the mistakes. You know, I think uh, the, the mistakes, the side effects only become bigger and bigger if you don't investigate them and if you don't try to improve them. And then you get those big scandals uh, like we have seen in the aid industry, right? So better have you open, uh, try to research it. For instance, the issue of Corruption, you know, and uh, I think it also links, and if you allow me, with the comment of Catherine Bain on the, the geopolitical interests, because we see, especially once the aid becomes very geopolitical, corruption side effects of aid increases. Um, because, you know, uh, we know that in, uh, a country is corrupt or government is corrupt, but we're funding it anyway because we think, oh, it's a geopolitical friend, you know. So, um, uh, I think that if we want to address this issue of the geopolitization of aid head-on, we should show that, African, that in the end, all our countries benefit if other countries are stable, are democratic, are uh, live in prosperity. So that, and if you want the development agenda to succeed, you need to steer towards this long-term agenda uh, with, you know, with less corruption, with more uh, democratic governance. So I think we need to really engage with those who want to instrumentalize aid for geopolitical concerns and explain to them that this might help you in the short term a little bit, but in the long term, there will be so many negative effects, you can destabilize entire regions. So please don't go down that way. And if you want to support the population in those uh, countries, those geopolitical 
allied countries, you can maybe find other ways to work directly with civil society groups or CBOs, but you, you don't have to work through the government if you want to support the population. So this is, I think, how uh, yeah I would take that issue on uh, that Catherine is raising. Any other thoughts on this? Geshe, Christina? Yes, I can add also that uh, even by working with the government, you, you can have a number of uh, uh, modalities and approaches to, to work with the government without uh, and ensuring that districts risks of fraud and corruptions are taken into account in the practice by, I mean, organizations like the development, all development agencies have a, a specific audit office or uh, an independent office that looks into these questions and, and, and address it in making sure to prevent it, but also to respond in case it happens and to have a transparency about that. So um, I, I'm afraid that sometimes with something maybe small, it can become a, a full word and a, a disaster for an organization when it goes into news and it becomes um, it comes through uh, social media, but uh, I think we need to to keep the the heads uh, cool in terms of how to yeah how to react to that. It doesn't mean I think as I think um, I agree with uh, Dirkian that uh, it's not because we we are afraid or we 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 want to avoid fraud and corruption that we need to to block ourselves in in the way we we are working. If we block ourselves, well, then better maybe not just staying at home and not doing anything. <laughs> so in this case, so I think that there are prevent preventive measures and, and response measures as well. Possibly the development aid is one of the sector that is the, the best controlled uh, with a number of evaluations that exist that you won't find in, in any ministries at the same extent uh, in all the Western countries. So, yeah. It's a high bar often. Yes, agreed. Um, we have a question uh, from someone named Zakir, uh, I believe, who talks about how a lot of issues raised might be resolved if local community uh, were integrated into policy plans and actions as a stakeholder, not just the beneficiary only. Now, there's a lot of um, momentum behind um, the localization agenda. Um, Geshe, I'd like to bring you in here, perhaps, and and you know, is is it this panacea that um, that this question suggests it might be? Um... So panacea, I would say no, because <laughs> the same hierarchies and the same side effects and the same issues can obviously reside in local institutions uh, and local actors. So uh, I think sometimes we are a little bit starry-eyed about talking about communities, for example, in this way, as though they are therefore. Uh, benevolent and good, and they all agree on something, and they will show you the path. Uh, but I, I doubt the the commentator meant it in that sort of simplistic way. I, I think, I think it is the way to go. And the book, I think, does make this point. I really couldn't agree more that one of the most important things that one can do, and there's a comment later about culture, uh, is to really understand that these things are highly contextual. Now there is uh, a tendency uh, in. I suppose in the aid system, but I think in many development systems, uh, to want to generalize and to seek to standardize and to find approaches that work for everybody, you know, the one size fits all. But I think that's one of the areas where the best thing you can do is work locally, uh, because then the local nuance is at the table. It may not be neat, it may not be easy to work with, uh, it may 
add a price tag or maybe save some something on cost if it's 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 it's, it's perhaps removing other uh, intermediaries. Um, but I do think that it's a necessary but not necessarily easy. Uh, uh, intervention that absolutely has to be made into the space. I think even on the point we were just discussing, um, I'm sometimes very leery of the conversations about uh, controls and processes to address corruption as being the absolute thing that aid must do, because we have similar challenges locally, where if we spend our time ensuring that the Auditor General thinks that everything is perfect, uh, very soon, if you go down that line, the easiest thing, as Christina said, is to do nothing, because if you do nothing, you will be clean. <laughs> Uh, and very often the issues we will find local actors, whether it's local governments or other actors actually being, you know, found out about are not always the, the corruption issues that are no doubt there. Often they're really common sense things people are doing to try and make things work, you know, trying to be agile, trying to be responsive. Now that's a finding. Now we have to, you know, audit this issue and spend a lot of time trying to prove that it wasn't corruption. Um, I think we have to address corruption, but if you're trying to do development, do development and take the time to understand that it's messy and there has to be some ability to be a bit relational about it. Local actors are incredibly important. Great, thanks, Geshi. Um, there, there's several questions. I'm not going to be able to go through all of them, so I'm just going to go to the ones where I see several thumbs up and just try and quickly um, make sure we've tried to answer them because there seems to be some popular um, interest in them. So this this question that Catherine again raises around why we agree age shouldn't be confused with foreign policy and migration policy, current geopolitics makes that really unlikely, and given it's unlikely, can you make some suggestions for how to protect genuine aid agendas? Um, so Dirkian, I don't know if you have. Yeah, so I think that that, that I tried to start to answer. You, you did, yeah. By explaining that, uh, that we should explain to those who want to geopoliticize aid to really look at the long-term effects of that approach and how it can really create havoc in, in countries. Um, picking back a bit on this point, you know, and, and the point on localization, I think we often forget how important the localization of research uh, is actually because uh, what do I see that many of the unintended effects that we describe in this book are already known locally, uh, but uh, they often don't filter up because how the aid system is working. We have those consultants flying in for two weeks doing their assessment of the program, and then all those underlying issues that local researchers would have found out already if they would have just been put in the position a long time ago. Yeah, remain uh, remain in the dark. So yes, I like localization of aid, but let's also do the localization of research, having long-term research uh, observancies who can really monitor the side effects, positive and negative uh, of aid. And then we can filter that up and also show that to those who want to geopoliticize aid, like, hey, but this is actually happening on the ground if, you, if you're doing that. Yeah, I mean, I love the metaphor in your book that you sort of use to describe this. You talk about the slow food movement and how the system should draw some inspiration from that. And I guess the question is, how feasible is that, right? In the context where China's speed, um, its ability to engage is is seen as one of its advantages um, in 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 the kind of development space. So, um, yeah, I think I think the slow movement metaphor is is a great one. But I guess is it is it fit for purpose in the current context? Well, I think what we have seen with some of the African countries or communities which have engaged with the, the Chinese fast aid are now seeing the consequences of that, right? That those roads are crumbling. That, so I do think that uh, there are some side effects to going very fast. And, and we see that 
uh, especially okay, one thing about China. Then um, we have these all these processes of free trial and informed consent with the Western Development Banks. If you want to build a road through a community, you know the community needs to agree. Then the Chinese dominated development bank said yes, we will continue with the FPIC, free trial informed. But they to see they made consultation. Not consent, but consultation, and there it's a big difference for the local community because it's very easy for some for a bank to say, "Yeah, I consulted you guys," which is different than I got consent from you. So, yes, I am in favor of slow policy movement because I do think that we can really protect the interests and uh, the communities better if we have due diligence in place. Right. Um, and I think I just one last question before I kind of try and wrap up a little bit. Um, there was a question about really the the methods, really. So Gordon Cumming asked, given that not all aid evaluation reports are publicly available, how easy is it to get a sense of the scale of these unintended side effects? Um, and is there evidence of positive side effects being built into future projects or programs? So this possibility of learning um, in the context of evaluation. Uh, Christina, maybe... You might have some thoughts there. Well, this is something that actually we would like to to look uh, a bit in, more into details. Um, we 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 knew the work from of Dirkian for for almost uh, a year now uh, that he was working and he came to enable to present uh, about unintended effects. And I mean, the idea is to ignore that uh, it exists. We are not sure that in our evaluation reports it's. It's not that we're not sure we know that it's not present in all evaluation reports that there is a, a fine, refined analysis of unintended effects of the each project. But the idea is really to, to dip to, to dig uh, into the, the reports and to try to identify um, if there are any specific trends in, in the type of unintended effects that we have. Um, and if we can identify that and see what comes very frequently in our practice, it gives us also strong lessons learned for new programming. And um, for example, now we, we, so this is something that we would like to, to do next year. Uh, but in addition to that, we, we try also to, to have a, a more structured system to use the recommendations and lessons learned from our reports into the the, cycle, the the programming cycles within the bilateral cooperation. It seems obvious like that in theory, but in practice it's not that obvious because we have big programs with a lot of projects and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's sometimes the lessons learned and recommendations are taken, but sometimes it's not taken into account in the cycles. So I think that um, there are some approaches, I, uh, I believe, to, to take into account uh, unintended uh, effects. And in terms of monitoring, I would say that including uh, new approach, well, new well, approaches that we're not using, new to our organization, like outcome harvesting, can be a, a good way also to um, basically to try to identify all the effects, not only what was expected in through this discussions at the beginning, sometimes three, four years before uh, the measurement, but really to try to capture the change, different types of change that happen as, as we work. So changing the way we're doing our outcome monitoring with approaches like outcome harvesting can be another way. 
Great. Thanks, Christina. Um, there's, I haven't been able to go through all the questions, but hopefully if there's any there that catch your eye, please do respond um, verbally. Um, and thanks for, for the participation of the audience, which has been great. Um, to wrap up, we have a couple minutes now. I, I want to kind of go back to the exam question, which we set for this <laughs> session, which was, you know, how should donors respond uh, to the possibility of these unintended effects? Now, I put I put three choices up. One is they should deliberately try and avoid them. Um, and that could be sort of seen to maybe a, a do no harm, except for the positive ones, the positive effects, like the ripple effects that, that your can talks about. Um, should they just accept them as inevitable to the aid endeavor? But you suggest that these are avoidable, Lurkian, in your book. So, you know, is it just, um, you know, a passive destiny focused kind of argument there? Is that is that sufficient? Or should they be acting on them? Should they be doing something differently? Grip it by the reins. So I'm going to give you one, maybe one minute each to try and kind of um, conclude on that note. So I will end with Dirk Jan because um, he wrote the book and he's going to have a second one, I'm sure, um, coming out soon to address that. But but maybe, uh, Geshe, do you want to, to start? So, so I'm going to steal the easy answer, which is probably all of them. Uh, I think they should avoid if the only possible response is let's do nothing. <laughs> so then rather avoid. Uh, I think they should accept if that means taking responsibility, doing no harm, working deeper, and most importantly, learning. Uh, but I think the acting one is very interesting because to me, the acting really requires a degree of insight and the points we were discussing earlier about the power relations, about the institutional behaviors. Without doing that work, uh, I'm not sure what the possibility of action is. And in fact, the action might just take us from one problem to the next. Great. Thanks for that. Christina? Yes, uh, well, I think it will depend, of course, of each of the, the type of uh, an intended effect and on the context as well, as well, what we feel and assess as acceptable or not acceptable. Um, so, so there is no one response, but uh, if really I need to, I would say act on them, of course, because once you have the information about the existence of unintended effects of your action, if you're not doing anything, it's it's absolutely irresponsible. It's accepting that there might be negative effects that you're doing and, and you're not doing anything about it. So I, I really I think really that we all need to be focused into action. And um, and of course, when when it's it depends also on the impact of this specific uh, intended effects on. on on development on the communities. So a balanced approach, but definitely into action. Thanks, Christina. And Dirk Jan, final word on this? Yeah, and I'm sorry that we can't answer all the questions of the audience, but I'm glad that they started to discuss with each other. So that's great. That, that made my life a bit easier already. <laughs> so uh, great being here. So, but I think that, uh, yeah, if I had to choose, I would focus on the act. Um, because I think that some unintended effects you, yeah, uh, are just acceptable if you look at the outcome uh, you want to achieve. And uh, so it's not about just making sure there's not a single risk happening because then maybe you just stifle any kind of innovation. So, but it needs to be calculated. That's what I say. And I think that we haven't been doing the calculations correctly because, and that some of the people also said, yeah, many of those reports are not public. Many organizations keep and the, the failures for themselves. So we don't really learn. So we don't really know about, we cannot do the actually uh, good calculations. So yeah, let's act better on them, but let's do it together. 
great. That's a great um, note to end on. Uh, I think there is consensus on action, which is not fully unsurprising, um, given the glass half full perspective that, you know, the sector tends to attract. So um, with that, I just want to thank um, all three of you for, for joining us today. Um, uh, really a, a big pleasure on my part to, to invite you to join this webinar um, and to thank the audience as well for their engagement and a great set of questions. Apologies for not being able to um, bring all of those voices on, on, on to the panel, but I hope there can be an ongoing dialogue and debate. Certainly ODI is hoping to host um, several webinars um, relating to the role that aid and donors play in a world where we're trying to get well beyond traditional forms of development assistance. So I just encourage you to stay in touch. Um, in the chat, we put Yassine's email in case you'd like to be added to our newsletter and mailing list. Um, and I guess it, uh, it just leaves me to, to thank you again and to wish you a good end of day.